Welcome back to What's Your Bliss, part of the Anything But Credible Network. My name is Thomas Ragland, and I'm delighted to be coming back to you another week. This week's guest is a certified parent, teacher, life coach, and um, has been an organizational change agent and a leadership coach for over 20 years. It's Kieran Gand. Kieran, welcome, and What's Your Bliss? Thank you so much for having me today, Thomas. Um, this is part of my bliss, I would say, is really just conversation. I love to connect with people. I love to have interesting and um, just learning conversations with people. I think that conversation is one of the things that you know, we had during this pandemic, but in a very different way. And I yeah. think it's one of the things that it really made me realize how important it is to me to be with people and to just have those fun and interesting and life enriching conversations. So I think I could talk about a lot of other things, but for today, it seems appropriate to be talking about connection and conversation. That's awesome. I love that. And uh, I would echo that. I think we had to find some new ways, certainly, including this, uh, as we're yeah. doing over Zoom, um, of connecting and, and conversing with people. But in general, yeah, I think it's it's um, what it's taught us is how much I think most of us need that. Um, what uh, I, I want to just jump into kind of uh, your history with kind of that connection and that communication. Has that been something that you've always sought? Has that, like, you know, from, from a very young age or is that something more as you've become a coach that you said, hey, this is really valuable? Mm, that's a great question. I guess it makes me realize when you ask me that, that um, perhaps partly why I value this so much in part is because I, from the time I was born, I'm a twin, actually. And so right. I've, I've spent my whole life, you know, in such a close relationship to another human being. Um, I think that that is a very influential experience in many regards that in that experience of like what relationship looks like it's so unique and it's so deeply intertwined with another person that I think it it's kind of different you know from people who don't grow up with that it's very right. intimate there's this closeness there that then I think really shapes you as a person and what you seek and what you help others uh, like it's partly what what I think I bring as a strength to coaching and even teaching is this kind of emotional proximity to others that I, it's a lot, I have a lot of ease and flow around that. And I know maybe not everyone does, but it's one of the things that I, I love about um, the work I do and just about being around people and hopefully help others feel more comfortable with that and kind of welcome that into their own lives too. Yeah. I, I am the father of twins, um, so I can certainly understand that piece, especially around just, like you said, you don't, you get to grow up completely intertwined with someone else. And um, I'm curious if that had ever, if that's ever served in a deficit for you, um, you know, because it was maybe, maybe inability to kind of separate, uh, you know, the two of you or, or to kind of form your identity. I'm wondering if, if that, if there was impact in, in the negative way there. Yeah, I think that that can be a real big challenge with twins. My mother in particular, I do give her a lot of credit that I think from a young age, 
she worked really hard to foster. She's a very kind of fiercely independent type of person. And especially being a woman in the age she grew up in, she's kind of like exceptionally independent minded person, which I think is a great combination, you know, for raising two girl twins that she really instilled in us this Yes, there's this thing that happens through nature and biology where we're very close and you can't, you know, that's a that's just the way twins are. But um, but she also kind of influenced us to think independently, go to different colleges, you know, play different sports, play different instruments, be in different classrooms. And I think um, it kind of taught us to have this balance, you know, and 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 we, you know, that relationship continues on throughout life and it changes and morphs a lot. You, you know, you get married, you have kids, you have your own careers and all of that. So it's, I wouldn't say now at this stage of life, it's still exactly the same, you know, and we brought other people into the fold, but I think growing up with that kind of, you will go to different colleges, you will do these different things. It helped us to see that we could make our own way. You know, and I think that's very important for twins. At least it was for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can also see that, you know, we're obviously talking specifically about twins, but I would imagine siblings in general, there's mm-hmm. a piece of that still that you want to make sure that that's going on, that you are fostering not something that, not an environment in which everybody kind of does the same thing, but you are fostering the individual there. Um, it's harder with twins, obviously, um, for, for various reasons. But uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's really amazing. And, and to, to hear you kind of talk about, you know, your mother doing that. And like you said, kind of uh, just really balancing that independence with, with also being a part of this collective and, and a part of the, the family and all of that, I'm sure that was um, quite a balance uh, for for her specifically as, as um, you know, kind of the caregiver. Yeah, it was. And we have another sister. And so I think it's, you know, that's always a balance. And I, I'm a mom of two girls, but they're not twins. And so I see some similarities and differences. But I think... Um, in addition to that family history, you had also asked just this theme of connection, I think between parent and child is also been a big theme of my work, you know? And um, so reason being that I think it, um, depending on how we're raised, you know, that can either come easily or not so easily. And, you know, in my case, I had my twin around all the time. And and then my parents, both of them were entrepreneurs and very work focused and really great parents, very bright, very loving people. Um, But when I set out in my parenting journey, it was a lot of this kind of what is this whole thing with connection? Why is this so important? How do we foster it? And how do we, I think this year in the pandemic, especially, We've had a lot of connection in our families, but then the connection with the outside world interesting to navigate for people. So it's been a big topic on on the mind, I think, for for all of us, this idea of being connected. What does that mean? What does that look like? Um, And it's interesting to put two and two together in this conversation around the early life and being a twin. I don't know, often put it together like that. So it's interesting to have that come up. Yeah. What have you learned as kind of the, I guess, the opposite of that relationship now, right? Going from child in the parent-child relationship to the parent in the parent-child relationship. What do you, what do you think you've learned from just building that dynamic? 
Mm, yeah, I mean, it's interesting when the kids are really little and just through nature and through their developmental needs and all that. I mean, they 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 just need you so much, right? So right. connection in some regards, I don't know how old your kids are, but mine are getting a bit older now, nine and 12. Um, there's an interesting play now going on for me because these earlier years when I was so needed just physiologically and I chose certain things, you know, feeding the kids and being there so physiologically. And then, you know, throughout most of the elementary years, they're just running to you. You know, at the end of the day, they want to be with you. They want to see you. They want to connect with you. And really the only things that get in the way of that force, which is just so strong towards connection and secure and secure attachment, the only things that really get in the way of that, I think, are our own, you know, busy minds, our own busy lives, our own sort of, you know, other demands that pull us away. If it weren't for any of that, I think we would just very naturally be connected, you know, most of the time with a parent and child because we're sort of designed for that when they're so young. What I find interesting right now is going through the experience, and I was a high school teacher for almost a decade, but my older one is now has completely gone through the transition into like tween slash teen years. And I would say that the connection now is something that I think really shifts and the way in which you stay connected with a kid of this age group is not as much a force of nature. I would say the force of nature is actually kind of pulling you apart because they're individuating and they have to go through that. And it's very healthy, but it's very, it can be a bit rocky. I think as a parent, I found it even of, of all the things I preach as working with others that, you know, the letting go process is just, you really got to let them grow up and they don't need to be hanging on you and hanging on your every word or your body. They, it's just not that way. And so you're letting go while figuring out how can I stay connected to this child who's now so influenced by their peers, influenced by other, you know, pop culture and, and all things that I was influenced by at this age. Um, so I think the intentionality and the gentleness by which you maintain that connection is something of a different animal and a totally different chapter in the life, both of the parent and the child. And so I'm going through that now. And then the pandemic brought it even to another weird level. But I think the one of the practices that's consistent throughout is this like having one-on-one -on -one time with each child and really doing that in a non-distracted way and in a way where the child can lead and where I think now with an older teen, pretty much a teen child, I'm not as enthused outwardly or flamboyant in my energy with my kid. I'm much more quiet and I'm much more observant and much more kind of trying to play things cool, you know, because that's what they're doing all the time. So it's interesting, but I think I'm still being consistent with that practice. The practice is what stays the same is the staying the one-on-one -on -one time with the kid. Yeah. So it's been interesting to go through myself and it's, uh, it's going pretty well, you know, it's, um, it's just different, you know, so you'll see how old are your kids? Yeah, my kids are um, my my twins are um, going to be three in September. Mm -hmm. um, so 
they're they're getting close there. And then we also have um, an eight month old. Um, oh. Yeah, and uh, and actually we also have a twenty um, three year old um, oh. who we uh, adopted when he was sixteen. So um, yeah, we run uh, run the age group there. <laughs> yeah, you do. You've got a good family there, but a good big family. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't know if any of that resonates for you or what you're. It own. absolutely does. Yeah, I'm thinking of that even right now, and and especially having twins, I'm sure this is probably something that your mother probably felt as well. But this idea of, you know, you mentioned your mother again, fostering that independence, and I have found it has been so imperative for us to do one-on-one time with each of the twins and, and have them develop their own interests and not just doing things with each other all the time. We just started doing partially because of the pandemic. We might've done this earlier, but we just started doing um, one, you know, one, one twin sleepovers at a grandparent's house. Right. Um, you know, before we, we hadn't really done that. And so just to give them some of that time and, and some of that independence that, that they don't typically have from each other. So yeah, I absolutely uh, resonate with, with pretty much all of that. <laughs> That's amazing that you're doing that. I think as a twin myself, I, I think that sounds so nourishing for them, their individuality. That's great. Yeah, it, it does help that they are, I mean, even from, uh, you know, the first steps out of the womb, they were very different from each other. Um, so I think it's made it very easy to kind of uh, foster some of that. But uh, yeah, it, but 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 it has not been easy, especially with the pandemic to have the actual time away from each other, um, which we're, we're starting to get not just that, but also kind of out into the world again. You mentioned a couple of times that the pandemic um, had impacted what, what I took away was not just the parenting aspect, but also the career aspect. And I'm curious, just, um, you know, as much as you want to give, like, how did that pandemic impact you, your family um, and the work that you're doing? Mm. Well, my family, I'll start with that. I think, um, you know, we live in Northern Cal in the Bay Area where on the spectrum of, you know, how this whole thing has turned political, even though it's not political, but, you know, the spectrum of carefulness around pandemic and viral virus stuff, we live in a very, on the extreme, you know, very careful place where people are very right. compliant. I think very much masking, very much staying inside, very much keeping kids home from school, you know, to an extreme. And I think for the first few, first few months, there was almost this novelty to it. The teacher and me came out and it was like, oh, fun. We get to do all these lessons. And it, that for a few months was really awesome. And then I think no one necessarily predicted this would go on right. this long. And the schools didn't open up in the fall, really. So that it, it went on for a really long time here, you know, until even into the spring. So I don't know what your situation was, but like my older daughter, we, we checked the box for my little daughter to be homeschool, you know, full distance learning for the whole year. Right. And she was here all year. My older daughter started to go back in April Okay. And they both did really well. They're very focused students. I'm very proud of them. But I think, you know, they need a certain amount of social interaction and they would get it. The little one would do the Roblox and occasionally see a, a, if a parent was willing to send a kid out and go meet at sure. the park. We might do that. The older one, luckily at her school, I think the they did a wonderful job of sort of cohorting up the kids. So they had smaller groups. She was just starting middle school. 
And she made a really close group of friends, thankfully. So I think that was kind of her saving grace. And my husband has been working at a home all year. Um, he works for a large technology company, works for Google. And we had done some construction of like new spaces in our house. We created this ADU and my office. So everyone had kind of their own independent space, thankfully, to work in. So I think that helped a lot throughout this year. Um, and, you know, I think that we, we've done pretty well. We've had our meals together. We, we have dogs, you know, everyone kind of takes turns taking the dogs out. I think it was just the, the hardest thing about all of it was just the contact with the outside world and balancing that with the contact as a family. I mean, generally speaking, the four of us, we have a good time together. We like to do things together. We play games, we go, you know, whatever. We entertain ourselves and we, we enjoy that. But there did reach a point, especially with the older one hitting these like tween teen years yeah. where I think it was just too cooped up, you know, for her during that process. And even if I was Mary Poppins, I mean, I don't know that it would have been different. You know what I'm saying? My work uh, as a a coach has been very shaped. What I noticed is that um, in the past, my work as a parent coach was very, you know, parenting, parenting, parenting. And then this year, all the work as a teacher and educator really came into the fore because people were homeschooling. They needed to be, I live in a place where, um, and it's kind of like this everywhere, right? With college admissions, the way it is, people get very freaked out about kids falling behind academically. And that was like a huge concern. And then of course there's all the equity issues. And I taught for years in like title one schools, Mm -hmm. those equity issues, I totally get. I think in these more high achieving communities that, that driving with this don't fall behind thing. I was able to be a voice of kind of more the social emotional stuff for kids and more like, let's look at the balanced picture. Of course, academics are important, but every day, if your kid is just doing their best and maybe you're as a parent more focusing on making sure emotionally that they feel good, that you're helping them by saying, Oh, thanks for, you know, making your lunch today. Thanks for, you know, getting up without being asked and getting on your Zoom, like reinforcing what they're doing right. And as opposed to being so afraid of what they're missing, you know, that's one of the roles I was really helping parents throughout this year to emphasize and what I was emphasizing in my own home. And I think it's made a really big difference, you know, to not have more anxiety than we already had out there because of a pandemic you know, because anxiety went through the roof this year for kids and parents. Um, So that kind of stuff, that's what I do. Yeah. Have you seen anything um, in your work during, during the pandemic for, and, and this can be related to education. It can be related to parenting techniques or, or styles or, or things like that. Have you seen anything that the pandemic almost necessitated in terms of like shifts to how we do things that you hope stick around because they are in line with kind of that more caring approach? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, I'll start with the parenting and then I'll talk about the teaching. Yeah. I do think that as we're re-emerging and I'm, I'm on deck right now to teach a whole bunch of workshops on 
reemergence for, you know, at Stanford, I'm teaching something, some local schools for some companies. It's on everyone's mind. And one of the things I've also talked a lot about this year is how the hitting this pause button in some regards um, has given all of us, I know it's given me as a mother, a lot of room to reflect and consider you know, how was life before the pandemic? People where I live, you know, you tend to be in the car, just like racing around from activity to activity. Kids are really overscheduled. Um, you are barely taking a breath, you know, as a parent, you're, I, I've been telling the story that a month into shelter, I went out to the driveway and I realized when I looked at my SUV, I was like, I have not driven that thing for a month and I am so glad I am yeah. so happy to be out of that car, you know, yeah. and, and the early days of it, I was like gung ho teaching and all this stuff. I was actually like so happy in a way to just have this like downtime as a family. And I think I've heard that time and time again from so many people. Um, I think that the family meal, you know, took on, it's always had significance, but it took on even more of a significance. And I think that I hope is here to stay. Um, that like building life around the meal table, I think is like kind of the way it should be, you know? Right. And I, I do feel that way. And it, and then what comes from that, there's so many things that stem from that, what you eat, who's cooking, how are things getting done? Who's cleaning up? Um, what are you talking about at the table? Are you using that time to have family meetings sometimes? Are you, you know, just collaborating as a family? Um, and are you eating healthy? And, you know, all the things that sort of stem out from the, that really being like the heart, I think, of family life. For us, we've really reconnected to that rhythm. And I think it's really awesome. And it's simplifying. It, it simplifies the whole thing. Um, I also think that in terms of education, equity now is so big and it's yeah. always been big, but it's now something that everyone is talking about. And it doesn't matter if you're what zip code you live in, how whether there are any people of color on your block or not, it, everybody cares about it now in a way that I think is very genuine. And I hope that that will be the driving force of how we make decisions moving forward, you know? So those are, I could talk about a lot of other things. <laughs> for sure. One for each space. Yeah. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. And I, I think you're right. I think there's been, then I've had uh, several guests where we've talked about kind of that, like you said, the reemergence, the reconnection, those are, those are themes I'm finding pretty commonly. And whether that's with family or with, uh, you know, social groups in a different way, or just reconnecting with yourself, reconnecting with, with nature, um, you know, things that, like you said, things we maybe take for granted, the fact that, hey, I don't need to drive my car this month, right? I, I can do anything that I need to do with without doing that. And some of us can, and some of us can't, and you know, there's a variety of things that go into that. But I do think that that, that reconnection is something that we've absolutely seen um, on the family side. And, um, I, I think the equity piece, um, to your point for education is so important as someone, I, I work in education myself. Um, oh. I work at a university and, uh, you know, it's definitely forefront of our mind. It always has been, I think with our institution, because we're an open access, uh, public institution, 
but it's, I, I think we've been a lot of, I think it has shined a light for a variety of reasons. I think there was obviously the pandemic that shifted. How do you even, how do you make equitable teaching and learning in a time where people maybe don't have access to the way that they learn best? And how do we, how do we make time for that? How do we hold space for that? How do we give them the resources that they need to be able to do that? And then the other side of things, which is that we saw some terrible, terribly, uh, not just inequitable, but uh, downright horrendous things happen to people of color. Um, we've seen it for the entire history of our nation, but we, you know, it really came to the forefront when all of us couldn't get away from it, right? We 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 had to uh, watch the news. We had to be a part of that because what else were we going to do? Where else were we going to go? Um, we didn't have those things, those ways to escape. And not that we should be escaping. I don't think we should. I think we should be confronted with this. But I think the combination of those things, uh, I think you're right. I think it's, it's absolutely created a shift in how we speak about equity and how we think about it within educational institutions. Yeah. And I mean, I'll give a good example in my community where I live right now is in Palo Alto, California. Um, and we, you know, we're, we're an interesting district. It, it's a really high, quote unquote, high achieving district, pretty, you know, well resourced in, in many, many regards. And we bring kids in through these various transfer programs. Um <clears throat> from neighboring towns like East Palo Alto, East Menlo Park. Um, and we've had, you know, challenges, equity challenges, I'd say. Um, so, you know, we've had, <clears throat> we do our best to make opportunity, I would say, to kids who are coming from other zip codes and different resources. And then <clears throat> the culture here can be, you know, it's a very specific culture. The kids right. tend to come from very specific type of families. Um, and so then we have to deal with that. And then with the resource, from a resource standpoint, one of the things we did throughout the pandemic was we created a program where um, they created these like tents on site. They Wi-Fi'd them. They um, had kids whose parents were... Um, working frontline jobs and they couldn't work from home, they could drop the kids off and the kids would have a great connection. They'd be able to do school, all of that really successful program. So one of the things I've been advocating for is that after, you know, this year, as we quote unquote, reemerge, first of all, we want to see those programs continue and to maybe take morph into other shapes like if every kid in the school, you know, by eighth grade has like a math tutor and SAT tutor and all the other tutors, we need to make sure we're making sure the kids coming in from East Palo Alto are assigned a tutor, you know, and we need to pay for it, things like that. So I think that the gaps in opportunity, which then lead to gaps in performance, quote unquote, there is so much that we can be doing in a community like this and I guess communities everywhere to not just think of it as a pandemic problem, but it's obviously just illuminating the, the opportunity disparities that were always there. And um, if we want to, you know, we have the resources, I think, to help kids and make sure that they're getting that leg up. And kids are really hungry for that. You know, I think kids coming if their their parents can't just spend 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 on all this stuff, um, 
there, it doesn't mean the kid isn't ex exactly as capable as any one of the other kids, you know? And I think it's right. just a matter of, of course, it's not going to look that way on paper. If one kid over here is getting, you know, has 10 enrichment activities and 10 tutors, right. this kid doesn't, you know, it's just not going to look the same on a college application. So I think we have to deal with that, you know, and I, I think it'll be interesting too, because the SAT now in the UC system here is optional, quote unquote, right. or, but, you know, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to play out because people will still take it. But, you know, there are things like that. I, I, I am very curious and I'm hope I'm hoping also Jill Biden, I think um, the, the, Dr. Jill Biden, you know, she has an interesting background in terms of working on equity in education. I think she brings a lot of that into her role. And so it, that gives me hope. Let's see. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I find myself just resonating with so much of, of what you've said there. And like I said, my, my role is on um, you know, the other side, on, on the college side of things and the university side of things. And I think that we can and, and are, I think, in general, trying to do a better job of opening up access and, and understanding that some of these things that we've used forever, some of these traditional these traditions, these tests, are things that inherently um, have a bias with them and come with baggage. And like you said, just because someone uh, performs well doesn't mean that they um, they did because uh, of, of any number of factors that, that, that could be that they did have those those 10 tutors and those 10 enrichment activities. Um, it could be because they are, you know, just really good at retaining information. I think there's a, there's a lot of pieces there. But are right. we actually testing what we need to to understand readiness, right? And, and not just college readiness, but world readiness and societal readiness. And, um, you know, I, I, I keep hearing these conversations about, um, and I think they're valid, of course, conversations about like what, what we teach in schools. And I also recognize that we, uh, the, the students that are going through school now have about a hundred times more things that they have to go through than even I had to. Right. And so I think that there's there's also how do you find that balance? How do you incorporate the parenting pieces in there, just the life in general pieces? Um, and I think it's I think that's really difficult. Um, and and to try to find kind of that that balance. And I guess I'm uh, the question that's wrapped up in all of that um, yeah. is, is how do you how do you kind of help parents specifically find that balance? And, and not just with students who are of school age, but like just just anyone who's trying to to raise a child like how do you help them find that balance of these are things that they need to know um and you know these are things this is the social emotional stuff like you talked about earlier how do how do you help uh, parents find that balance well i will share a story with you because sometimes i think stories can be the most illuminating and it's from my own background my own experience because i'm parenting you know in one of the places i would say is kind of like an epicenter of a lot of the sort of hyper um, helicopter parenting stuff. I'm very surrounded by that in my community and the culture here. Um, I'll give you, a, I think the example that just says it all to me was that, um, you know, my kid who is always been, you know, she started reading pretty early, you know, and this is common around here. She She's very adept in many things as a, just a learner, you know, a traditional learner, um, which I feel very fortunate, you know, to have a kid like that. Um, 
But to give you an example, um, when she was in early in elementary school, right, I started to hear from her and from some of the other parents that there's this Russian school of math, which is this paid tutoring math program that can here has proliferated and many I've noticed it can be very popular in, in, you know, I'm not trying to stereotype, but I can say that it's, I'm part of the community. I think in the Asian communities and some of the immigrant family communities where they've, a lot of people come in here with these amazing jobs and engineering jobs and they're, you know, there's a certain way of educating kids where it's like very advanced, quote unquote, very quick and very much about rote learning, you know, and this Russian school of math, it just started to spread like wildfire. All these families were signing their kids up to take Russian school of math. This is for a first grader after school from two to 4 p.m. sitting in a class with a teacher getting like drilled in. Wow like middle school and high school level math, you know? So this is hardcore. And when I started to get wind of it, uh, there was as much as I preach what I preach around connection and the, the social emotional, which is the core for me as an educator and as a parent, I'm not gonna lie that it set off a bit of concern and anxiety. And I was like, oh my God, everybody's taking this class. What does this mean? You know, that part of my brain that just started yeah. to kind of spin out. And I ended up, you know what I ended up doing, and this is what I would say worked for me, quote unquote, was that I sat down with my child, my daughter, and I said, listen, hon, you know, this is, you've told me this and I'm getting wind that all your friends, like her really good friends. And it wasn't like the parents told me they were doing this. You know what I mean? It's like a very competitive thing. I just kind of had to get wind through the grapevine. And I sat down with my daughter and I said, listen, this is what seems to be going on. And people are signing up and it's supposed to be a way to kind of get their kids ahead and blah, blah. You know, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think we should do this? And my child at the time, who was a little kid, you know, she just looked me squarely in the face and she said, you know what, mom, I'll learn high school math when I'm in high school. <laughs> and I, that's what she said. And she said, I'm doing really well in math. I don't, she said, I don't feel like anyone taking those classes is coming up in every day, like doing so much better than me. I I'm still doing well and I'm getting the material. So what's the big deal? You know? And I said, well, thank you because you just saved me a lot of worry and sort of like, you know what I'm saying? That analysis yeah. paralysis that we can get into as parents. And I would say that the lesson in that was, again, you take this with a grain of salt because there is a balance. It's not either or like kid or parent. I think there's a fine line there. But when in doubt, I would say sitting down and talking to your child and just hearing what they really think and feel is a pretty good compass to use in making some of these kinds of decisions. Um, of course, you want kids to be involved and engaged to, to a certain degree, and you've got to determine what that is, but whether or not you have to be engaged in that, you know, nth degree thing to get them so far ahead, I, that is where I would just be thoughtful and be collaborative with the child about um, what they're perceiving their own needs are. Um, and I think 
what happened through having that dialogue with her and in the resultant decisions and the way that impacted our relationship was that it built trust. Like she really saw that as parents, we were going to listen to her and that she could count on us to take her input seriously. Um, I think now as a tween teen, there's a lot of stuff going on developmentally. They, they need more sleep. They need more, you know, there's their bodies are changing like light speed. Right. And, you know, cause you've raised an older child. Um, mm-hmm. There are times where I feel a little more than when she was little that I kind of have to push her a little bit sometimes, but I don't, I still do not take the approach of going too crazy with the like signing up for 20 gazillion things. It's more like, the things that I know she really wants to learn and pursue and that are loves of hers. Those are the things we're going to invest our time and our energy and passion into because that's what she will succeed at because she cares about it. You know what I mean? Um, And I also want her occasionally doing things that aren't just about being great. And I want her to understand what failure looks like and to not be afraid of that. Um, so there have been things we've tried things that just aren't the right fit and maybe she'll go to a meet or something and just not do great. And that's okay. You know, it's like you kid can't, it's not realistic to think that any human being is going to be the best at every single thing that they do. I just, I think that that is an unfair, unrealistic set of expectations to be placing on ourselves or our kids. You know what I mean? So I I say that because I know what it looks like and I, I'm around it a lot and I see it a lot. Um, I think that there is probably going to be one or two or three things that all of us are great at, you know, and it's important to identify those things, but also have a balance. Like there's an organization in our community called Challenge Success where their mission, it was started by two psychologists out of Stanford, um, Madeline Levine and Denise Pope. And they're, they go all around the country and their real mission is to kind of broaden the definition of success. Um, <clears throat> and in so doing, just sort of challenge the current definition. And they have this acronym PDF, Playtime, Downtime and Family Time. And I like that a lot because I think it gives us, obviously in the pandemic, we had way more bandwidth and time for playtime, downtime and family time. But my challenge to everyone would be as you reemerge, are you going to create a life for yourself where there's still time for those things? And I think that developmentally and socially and emotionally, those three things really, really matter for kids. Yeah. The, the playtime, downtime, family time piece, and there's so many so many things of what you said, so many directions that I, I feel like we could go, but the playtime, downtime, family time piece, um, as you mentioned, it, it's so important for kids, and I think it's equally as important for adults um, to not only get that, I mean, I think it's important as as parents for us to do that with our kids and to encourage that and all of that, but it's it's so important for us to prioritize that in ourselves as well, because so often... We don't. Um, And whether that's because we are prioritizing that for our children or because we feel like uh, that is uh, child stuff, right? Like, uh, you know, I I do a lot of work with 
um, masculinity and, and men and, and this idea around men don't, at a certain point, you are basically told to stop playing, right. To grow up and, and that you don't get to play anymore. And I think it's, I I think it's created a lot of, it's obviously created a a, a terrible uh, uh, environment that men have continued to contribute to uh, being terrible in a lot of ways. And, because, but I think a large part of that is because you are then, you know, it's time to grow up. And I, and not to say that, that women don't get that as well, but I do think it happens in, in a little bit of a different way and at a little bit of a different time. And I, I think it's just so important for, for everyone to remember that playtime and downtime and family time, like those are the things that, those are the things you remember. Those are the things that stick with you. Those are the things that, that build you, build your personality, that build your, uh, your interest. And, and, and I think we forget that because we go on, we get older and we assume work as our identity. And when yeah. we do that, then we don't have the identity pieces that are left in those areas that we actually built of like, fun and care and grace we we lose all of that because we get so wrapped up in the work is the identity and the work and this is probably also part of being a capitalist uh, nation but but the work is the core and the most important thing and i think when you when you strip all of that away it's like well again the the thing you're going to remember is not every piece of work you're you're going to try to prioritize those moments that you get from the playtime from the downtime and from the family time Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought the masculinity into it. I know I've been listening to some different things with um, just, is it Jason or Justin Baldoni, the actor? I think he's doing a lot of work around that too. Yeah. Right now. Um, and, and to hear men talk about what it feels like sometimes, like when you're sitting around with a group of men and just to even find the men where you can be like what you're mostly chatting about is like your kids or your spouse or your, your hobbies versus like your next promotion and all of that. Like that is kind of intense to think about that. And I know I've talked about this kind of stuff with my husband a lot. Um, And yeah, I, I mean, I think that we all have work to do. I know I live in a place where I feel like the work workaholic kind of culture is really intense here. Wow. It's yeah. a very type A place. And so I think everyone's working hard to figure it out, figure out the balance and working hard to figure it out. You know, it's so funny. But the play, I, I think kids, that's one of the awesome things about kids is that they're so built for play and they're so intuitively like just so ingenious around play Mm -hmm. that if we even just spend a little bit of special time with them before you know it like they'll be getting us playing you know and i think that's the whole point right that's the whole reason we have kids that's what you're saying is like those are the memories that that really matter to us so Yeah, I think I encourage my clients to even just start with like a 10 minute, 10 or 15 minute, even if it's you have never felt the energy to like get roughhousey play with kids, even if you just let them jump on your back and piggyback them around for five minutes, like there's always that window into it. And I think there are those little things like that, that can get us going. You know, so I think those are good places to start. Just get the kid up on your back and just go run around and see what happens, you know, something like that. Yeah, absolutely. 
one of the things that you said um, when you were talking about the conversation that you had had with uh, with your oldest around the the high school math piece was that you went back to that communication. You went back to that that conversation, really. And and we started this by talking about your bliss being conversation and communication, and that uh, and that obviously like resonated in in the way that you were doing that. A uh, quick note: I also I, I find it very interesting that math was the. I, I mean, it's a universal thing, so I get it from that perspective. But the idea that math you know, you get to do this high school level math and then you do have to go back to first grade and like actually learn, you know, English and and social studies and all this other stuff that you don't have those high school. I I find that very fascinating. Um, uh, That's that's another conversation that we can get into. (laughs) Yeah, the enlightenment or something in first grade, why not? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, But but we we started talking about that conversation and communication and and as we're kind of uh, wrapping up here, it was a very quick hour. I, you know, I, just a couple of, of kind of final questions kind of around the bliss piece. And I guess to start is, you know, what about the communication and what about communicating and, and conversing with people? And, and what I'm gathering is, is all types of constituencies, all types of people. What about that speaks to you in terms of, of how it is blissful for you? Awesome question. I, I think what it, it is that I find so blissful about it is it helps me when I'm having a great conversation, whether it's the one with my little first grader about this or with you, is that it gets me out of myself and my own um, you know, neuroses, I guess, if you will, that we all tend to have. And it, it helps me see everything through someone else's view, point of view. And so there's clarity that comes with that. There's just a, it's understanding. I think I just really like to understand other people. And I think it's such a gift to be able to do that. And I think it helps me be a better person. It just helps me be a more informed person. It helps me be less self focused and it helps me be more feel like I've kind of joined that person for a minute, that sort of sense of oneness that, that I really believe in, um, that spiritually, you know, we're all, we all are kind of just the same. Um, I think I, I get to moment, I get to have a window into that, what that really means, you know? So, yeah. Absolutely. If you had to boil down advice for how people can find bliss in their own lives and in finding that conversation, maybe it's folks that are struggling, have always struggled with that. Maybe it's folks who have struggled with that now because of the pandemic and maybe not being able to connect with people like they like they used to. If they just needed a place to start to try to find those those blissful moments in communication, what advice would you give them to, to start with? I would say that the starting point would be instead of like looking down when you approach someone to try just looking in their eyes and to see if you can sustain that kind of um, look and connection for even uh, 30 seconds or a minute and just see, stay with whatever comes up, whatever kind of discomfort or old patterning or tendency to look away just because I do think from when the time we're born that it is that kind of eye contact that is, um, there's something about that, that we're really built for that. And I think it, it can help heal uh, whatever we've experienced that made that feel 
not great. We can, we can undo that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I'm, I'm struck by that. And this idea of, this is a, a very weird phrase that I feel like I'm going to say, but it humanizes the other humans, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it really does say this is a person with with a soul, with eyes, with you know, uh, you know that that I can be caring towards, and I can start with that open mind, and I can I can approach this in a way that I want to get to know them as a person, and not just as something that can, whether it's serve me or or whatever. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think that really just approaching it with kind of that openness. And I think the eye contact is kind of a, a key piece of that because it, it, it opens up not just their vulnerability, but your own um, to be able to, to, to really deeply connect. Even if it's, even if you don't end up deeply connecting that option, that doorway is opened by just starting with that. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that's a place where we can all play with a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Last question is just, what would you like to promote? Oh, well, thank you for asking me that. Um, I have a mastermind group program that is starting on September 7th. It is for busy parents, which we all are. And it's a it's a mastermind program with nine modules of self-paced content and three weekly calls per month at 5 p.m. Pacific on Thursdays. It's really designed to be a like-minded, safe, supportive community for parents to reemerge from this time to get some new tools and teachings and new approaches to all the things we've been talking about. And to mostly just have a really amazing community as well as some mindfulness and coaching support throughout that time. If people would like the specifics, because there's tons of specifics, um, you can check out my website, raisingresilience.com. And there's a tab about the course itself, which is called Resilient Success System. And there's a little video on there that I made that explains it. So, yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah, we'll we'll get that into the show notes and and definitely promote that when we're promoting the episode and promoting the page. Um, yeah, I think that that's uh, that's that's wonderful and uh, excited to to see what that uh, how that takes shape. I'm I'm sure you're excited to get it going as well. Um, I I feel like we could do another six hours. We did we hardly touched the actual parenting pieces um, and the pieces that that you're you you know your a lot of your expertise lies in. But I, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I think we went. Uh, into into some really great places. Me too, Thomas. Thank you so much for the chance to come on with you today. It was fun. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And we'll see everybody next time on What's Your Bliss. All right. You can find What's Your Bliss at anythingbutcredible.com and on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher. Please follow on Twitter and Instagram at yourblisspod and like What's Your Bliss on Facebook. If you have any questions for me, or if you'd like to be a guest or advertise on the podcast, please email me at yourblisspodcast at gmail.com. Please check out anythingbutcredible.com to find all the additional awesome content and podcasts, including Offended, Movie Merge, Going Off Topic, and of course, the Anything But Credible podcast. Podcast.